difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to the next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, finally back from my whirlwind tour of film festivals of North America, and I'm here with Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, Genevieve Kosky. Here on the next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every week we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're all very glad to be unstoppably famous on a level where our success and glamour will never diminish and no one will ever question our contributions to cinematic criticism. Keith, want to stand up on the red carpet, take a few bows, and tell us about this week's pairing? I suppose I could deign to do that. Uh, This week, we're considering a franchise that isn't exactly a franchise, at least not in the modern sense. The tradition of A Star is Born goes back to 1937 and is script written by Dorothy Parker, Alan Campbell, and Robert Carson, but supposedly inspired by the real-life marriage of Barbara Stanwyck and vaudeville comedian Frank Fay. The original movie, okay, what is that noise? Oh, no, that's our next big podcast star. Actually, Genevieve, could you just step in here and, and finish oh. up this week's oh. uh, pairing summary? I was thinking we could use a fresh new voice here. Uh, me? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, if you insist. Um, I wasn't really finished The new with film, the- A Star is Born, is a directorial debut of actor Bradley Cooper, who also stars as country rock singer Jackson Maine. It's also the first starring film role for Stephanie Germanata, better known as Lady Gaga, who's had a few cameo spots in movies and TV, but has never taken on a role of this depth before. But it's nowhere near the debut of The Star is Born plotline, which dates back to 1937. The film has been remade three times in America alone, first in 1954 with Judy Garland and James Mason in the lead roles, then in 1976 with Chris Christopherson and Barbara Streisand, and now again in 2018. In each case, the story follows a successful male star who's dealing with substance abuse problems and seeing his career fade, and a young ingenue he pushes toward fame, just in time to see her eclipse him. There have been a lot of differences in the versions over the years, but some things stay the same from remake to remake, and in particular, some common elements of the story make it particularly appropriate to all the eras where it's resurfaced. This week, we'll look at the 1954 version, directed by George Cukor, and rescued from a studio cut into a recreated version that's fascinating, but at times a little hard to watch. And next week, we'll look at Bradley Cooper's version and see what it updates and what it carefully keeps from its predecessor. We could have gone for the full Star is Born quadrilogy feature. (laughs) But even with our bright new star Genevieve on the scene, that might have been a little bit too much. So we'll settle for two back-to-back stars being born. Now, where did Keith get off to? The star is born, and in its splendor and deep emotional fire, in its shining beauty and wonderful heart, a new era in motion picture achievement is also born. 
You'll see it in the richness and magnificence so lavishly poured into every scene. You'll feel it in the countless moments of deep human understanding. You'll hear it in the rousing tempo of its great music. And you'll know it when you experience the joy and jubilation of Judy Garland as the star. And you'll never forget James Mason as Norman Maine, clinging desperately to the only real love he'd ever known. There's Jack Carson, Charles Bickford, all bringing inspired life to a story that only life itself could have inspired. There's a strange irony to the 1954 A Star is Born in that it's about a male Hollywood superstar fighting alcoholism and the rapidly approaching end of his career, but the woman who plays his bright young protege is the one who was going through similar problems in her actual life. By the time A Star is Born was made, Judy Garland had already been through major film stardom, a breakdown, hospitalization, treatment for depression and addiction, and a series of up-and-down career moves that had given her a reputation as unreliable and difficult to work with. She was having significant career problems by 1954. Part of the irony there is that when she and her husband of the time, Sid Luft, set out to remake the film, they reportedly had trouble landing a leading man, because some of the biggest stars of the day, including Marlon Brando, Humphrey Bogart, Henry Fonda, and Jimmy Stewart, turned it down because they were afraid of the reputation loss possibly involved in playing a troubled has-been. But James Mason eventually took the role, and George Cougar agreed to direct the 1954 version of the film in spite of his concerns that the story veered too close to his earlier film, What Price Hollywood? The production in A Star Was Born was apparently pretty troubled, with Judy Garland suffering what today sounds like anxiety and depression, and repeatedly taking time off, which held up production. Luft and Cougar apparently clashed over the Born in a Trunk segment, which Cougar and Mason both felt slowed down the film, while Luft and Garland felt it was a necessary showcase to underline her stardom. There were fights with the studio as well, and after Cukor completed the picture and Warner Brothers released it to theaters, the studio went through the film and cut another half hour from the story, in spite of hugely positive response to test screenings of the initial version. And here's a further irony. When the studio cuts were publicized, the backlash led to audiences avoiding the film, which hurt it both at the box office and eventually at the Academy Awards. So this is a lot of art imitates life imitates art for just one film, given that the 1954 A Star is Born is so fundamentally about the business of movie making, about a changing Hollywood that was less willing to pander to and protect its stars from their own public gaffes, and about how addiction and ego gets in the way of talent. Certainly, it's unlikely that anyone involved in the production was looking to reflect any aspect of Garland's life or of the studio actually making the picture. But like so many famous movies about movie making, A Star is Born ends up feeling a bit like a portrait of its era. It has the usual trappings of a film about Hollywood. The shots on the back lot where cowboys and Roman soldiers wander around and mix with each other. The pot shots at the short-sightedness of studio execs and the demands of spoiled actors. The underlying fear that commerce gets in the way of art and that movie making is kind of rolling compromise. But at the same time, in spite of its dark elements and the central tragedy, a lot of A Star is Born is still about the fantasy of recognition, of being pulled out of a crowd and making in Hollywood, about the exciting aspects of fame, and of being recognized as someone whose voice really matters. The film doesn't shy away from the ridiculous aspects of filmmaking, or the difficult aspects, or the way ego and hunger and stars' inability to see themselves clearly can destroy their lives. But it also gives in to some of the glitzy hopes of Hollywood, the idea that we're all just stars waiting to be discovered by someone in the right place at the right time, and ready to step right past them and up onto the stage and into the spotlight. How long will you be playing with the Grove? Well, tonight was our last night. We leave for San Francisco in the morning. Don't go. What? Quit. Leave the band. Stay on here. 
Let me see what I can do for you at the studio. I'll talk to Oliver Niles right away. It's just a chance, but take it. A chance? Do you realize I'd be giving up everything I ever worked for? That's right, but it served its purpose. Listen to me, Esther. A career is a curious thing. Talent isn't always enough. You need the sense of timing. An eye for seeing the turning point. Or recognizing the big chance when it comes along and grabbing it. A career can rest on a trifle like... Like us, sitting here tonight. Or it can turn on somebody saying to you... You're better than that. You're better than you know. Don't settle for the little dream. Go on to the big one. So, guys, what's your overall take on A Star is Born? You I, know, is this one of the big canonical films I'd never seen before? I don't yeah, know Yeah, I, I was wondering if any of and us had seen this one no, before. I'd seen it. I saw it. That was one of my library films, but I, I'd never seen it like this. <laughs> I'd seen it on VHS. I'd never seen it oh, as wow, it is. Yeah. And it's just like I was completely bowled over by it this time. I'd absolutely... I absolutely love it. Me too. Me too. I, I was like, why haven't I seen this film before? No, why haven't I seen this film many times before? It's a staggering it's, it's, yeah. achievement. And just and I, and I it just left me like a puddle of goo at the end. <laughs> yeah. the, last, the last 30 minutes of the film just it, it kills me even to think about it. That's just a really unfortunate term of... Uh... Literally murders me. I walk into the ocean and, and, uh, and uh, yeah, you think I'm going for a swim. But... You know what? It is really startlingly dark for a, a 1954 Technicolor musical yeah. that is not... I mean, it's not a noir film. Like, you would expect this kind of, of twist towards the end from a morality tale or a crime picture, but this is a this is a big Technicolor musical. Well, no, no, it's not unusual in the sense like this is a female weepy turn on its head i mean there's there are so many movies of this kind that were tales of female self-sacrifice movies like uh, stella dallas for example plenty of melodramas that were popular about about women who make these terrible sacrifices that we see and are moved by but perhaps the other characters don't understand what's being done for them and we we have this incredibly moving experience as a result um this is that except it is the man in this case who throws himself to the um you know to, to the rocky icy cold waters or something I, you know this is this is so so in that sense i think an audience would be braced for what this movie is so oh, it's, sure. it's also I mean, it's a warner brothers film not an mgm film as yeah. much as the you know as much as the mgm musicals are so much part of the dna of this and it's but i think it's also commenting on them as well as well i mean as well as like that born in the trunk thing it's like you know this is this is the great the great mgm musical number that never was but mm-hmm. also you get that scene late in the film where garland kind of describes like you know how running this over through, the top yeah, yeah and, then, and then you the actually rehearsals. get like sort of the, the Th- living be, room version of it which yeah is, that might be the scene of the movie for me uh, like, like yeah. i mean this movie for me is just like all garland the, her performance is just i mean it's a tour de force it's a cliche mm-hmm. but i mean it really really is and that scene in particular of her running through this you know dream ballet musical that she'd been in rehearsals for like even with the forays into like casual racial stereotypes you know that it includes is just like absolutely magnificent to watch her just the both the singing and the dancing but also just the acting that she's doing in that moment and like the give and take between her and James Mason in that moment with him is just an audience you know and she is the only one performing songs in this like he he is not a musical actor at all you know like he it's all her like her stardom is entirely based in this movie musical 
you know, realm that is so closely tied to Judy Garland and James Mason is kind of just sort of an afterthought in a lot of ways. You know what that scene reminded me of? In some ways, the whole movie reminded me of is, is the silencio scene in Mulholland drive hmm. where, where she, you know, she tells like, here's this ridiculous musical I was in. Isn't it silly? This business we're in. And then it's like, wow, you just blew me away by, by, by this musical you're in, you know, in Mulholland drive where it's like, everything you see is fake. And then you get this version of crying by Roy Orbison that just moves you to tears. And then it reminds you that it's fake at the end too. I mean, the movie is kind of like doing that as well, where it's like, it's so much about how, you know, Hollywood is manufactured, but at the same time, and you know, this is a product of that as well. And yet it's also incredibly moving too. It's that, that paradox that part of what, why I think we keep going back to movies in the first place in a way. It's also just so much about how fame is manufactured, which is kind of a, like a cynical, I mean, you, you, you see something very similar in singing in the rain, which is also like a big, bright technicolor musical with a much, much less of a dark side, but sort of that vision of the bigness and grandiosity of Hollywood. And at the same time, I'm just kind of the pettiness of it. You know, the how easy it is to become a star if the right person decides you should be. And if you're willing to just completely give up on who you are and give yourself over to somebody, how difficult it is to stay a star if you fall out of fashion. I never get tired of movies about movie making. Mm-hmm. They're so self-indulgent in a way. But, you know, it's it always kind of comes down to a, a write what you know, look behind the scenes in a way, and whether they're sentimental and sappy about like the business we call show as scott so often likes to say (laughs) or uh, like dark and accusatory they're just it's so much fun to watch hollywood send itself up or pat itself on the back either way definitely i mean this movie it's operating on so many different levels and it reminded me of of I, i have a fairly deeply held conviction that cinema itself just peaked in the mid 50s <laughs> and then it's been it's been a very fun ride from there on out but like this is when everything came together and you can really see it, it, it for as ragged as the star is born was as a production and as much as, as it sort of went through you can just see so much value on the screen i mean just the cinemascope photography the technicolor the opulence of the sets and the musical numbers and just the 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 so there's so many layers that this film is kind of working on at once and it all synthesizes so so beautifully under a craftsman of george cooker's considerable you know talent and performances are amazing i just i I think this movie has got it's it's the bee's knees. It's got every it's got it's got everything uh, everything you want in a movie. And I, and I like being absolutely crushed by a film. And I think like <laughs> I, and I, I think that's I think that's kind of a value that we don't get much in Hollywood, which kind of makes the the new Star is Born kind of refreshing that it that it is willing to go. You know, it has to because it's remaking the film, but willing to go to to that dark place and that very dramatic and sad place because it's so rare um, now to, for Hollywood films to want to take us there and and uh, and have let us have that kind of emotional experience. And uh, the Star is Born is just such a full barreled version of that. The seventy six version apparently doesn't. I was I was I didn't have time to watch all four versions. Uh, or there's at least one Spanish remake, and I wouldn't be surprised if there were other you know non American remakes as well. Unfortunately, I just with all the festivals, I did uh, not have time. But I read plot summaries of them, mostly because I was really curious about that that end plot point. And it really sounds like in the Christopherson Streisand version, his death is completely accidental. And or I thought it was a, my my read. Have you seen it? No, I I started to watch it 
I actually started to watch it after I watched this one, but like I didn't have, you know, I didn't get past the credits, but, um, some, someday, although I hear, you know, but my understanding is it's supposed to be ambig- ambiguous. It's like kind of mm. unclear. There's introduced more ambiguity than any other version. Yeah. Obviously, I haven't watched it, but, uh, just the descriptions, like all of the descriptions I've read seem to, to put it as much more of at least potentially an accident mm. than any of the other three American versions. So I think that that's an interesting choice. And it was, before I saw the latest version, something I was a little curious and maybe a little concerned about. It's also it also stems directly back to what price Hollywood, um, mm. which you may hear me talking a little more about next week. But the suicide plotline is directly traceable to that, as are a lot of things about this story. But that in particular is very directly taken from. That's or, interesting. Not taken was, from, but directly related to what price Hollywood. The Cooker was reluctant to do it because of what price mm-hmm. Hollywood, but then inc- ended up incorporating elements. Or had, it had already been made as a Star is Born. Yeah. And he, apparently that, the 1937 Star is Born had been offered to him, but it was only five years out from what price Hollywood, okay. and he didn't want to do it because it was too close. When this opportunity came back around in 1954, I guess he was kind of lured in by the promise of getting to make his first Technicolor film. And what, his first uh, musical and to work with Garland. Yeah. Mm. So uh, I guess enough time had passed that he was ready to revisit it. And like, there are some significant changes, uh, you know, from that film to this one, but they are pretty close. Mm. Well, so Scott, I'm curious, the VHS yeah. version that you watched. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it would have been a while ago, but. But it sounds like uh, from what you said that uh, maybe it didn't have the scenes that Warner Brothers cut because that would have been presumably oh, have, before I, the restoration? I have no idea, but I mean, I, I could certainly say that if I saw it on VHS, it would not have been, you know, the cinemascope aspect of it would have been totally ruined. I'm sure the colors were probably not there either. So it, so it really felt, it felt like a pretty new experience. But, but, but presumably you would have realized that there were like film stills with audio underneath, you know, I guess it probably would have. Uh, and I, th- and I was really watching it this time thinking, well, well that's, you know, that's a that's method a, that's of a, storytelling. That's an interesting choice. Maybe you were just like you had it held over from watching Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid where, yeah. where they do something similar. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, or like, I mean, there's kind of like stuff like that in like Sunrise. You remember Sunrise when they, when they go to the city and Sunrise is kind a of... A of Two Humans? A Song of Two Humans. There's kind of a montage that's very odd and, yeah. and not in keeping with the style of the rest of the film. Yeah. So, so that kind of has made my brain thinking like maybe this is like just a deliberate artful touch that's being done here that's a little that's oh, strange. <laughs> but no, no that, that, that's not true. I, I'm mostly just curious because you, you had said that you originally thought you didn't realize that these were lost scenes. Warner Brothers cut them and apparently uh, burned the negatives in order to get the extract the silver so there was no way to recreate them uh, until they like once they once somebody his film historian found the audio um, they started trying to put it together mm. but there were and there were clips that they were able to get from other sources that were the uh, the positives okay. so you can see sort of where the the fuzzy color versions are and you can see where they couldn't get footage at all that makes it really clear where the cuts are. So I'm curious whether while you were watching this, you had any no. consciousness, any of you had any consciousness of, all right, well, Warner chose to cut this. Like maybe this wasn't necessary. Yeah. I mean, two things like I, I did, you know, when I hit that part, I kind of tried to imagine what the film would be like without it. I can, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like, you know, if you got to cut something, you cut there, but, but the other cuts I, I thought were actually really shocking. And there were two number, two scenes I really 
love uh, in in the film. I did not find out until later that they were actually um, cut. So that's uh, they were for the record. Which musical numbers were were they? The Lose the long face. Lose the long face, and which is great. Lose the long face, which is great, and has probably my favorite moment of Garland's acting in the whole. Yeah, where movie. she like just uh, she literally loses the long face to yes. deliver the the climax of the song. Again, it's a Silencio scene <laughs> all over again. Um, oh, uh, then, here's what I'm here for. Yeah, which is the one where they had the marriage proposal, which, yeah. which is like you know really uh, inventively staged and with a microphone. Yeah, with the microphone. I was so yeah. I was so confused what was happening, you know, and um, mm-hmm. d- during like with the microphone and like because Garland was like kind of singing, but they were also conversing, but you couldn't hear them, and I was like, is this another like weirdly reconstructed? Uh, right. you know scene but then the payoff of them them playing the audio was a, a pretty and the way they, they got two, me <laughs> the way this, the way this to play it too and the positioning of them in front of the uh speaker i believe you know or however they stage it it's all it's really you know the cooker guy he knows what he's doing yeah. Uh, as to your question about like whether those scenes needed to be put back in, Tosh, I'm, I'm thinking less of the musical numbers because I think like those absolutely should be in there for the reasons we just kind of talked about. But as far as the uh, the stuff kind of at the beginning of the film where where Norman is hunting for her, yeah, yeah, or it, well, and the whole thing where he's like whisked off to a, a shoot and gets sick and, and like it's like a ship's passing in the night type of deal, you know, like. I think that's all kind of useful and because like as I was like charting the film and like trying to figure out how it actually would have been in the studio cut like it seems like it would have just gone from her from him telling her to show up at the studio to her showing up there and getting made over or whatever and like I I think like having that little bit of struggle and and it's actually seeing like all the crap jobs she has to take Mm -hmm. in the interim because you know like the car job and the commercial thing you know like and you get that moment where she says you realize that she was going to stick with this anyway that she's grateful to Norman for for taking her off the path that she was on because you know she's committed to doing this whether or not he's going to be the one who like gives her stardom or not yeah it just adds like an element of struggle to it that I think I would have missed if it wasn't there and it would have felt too easy and too simple you know this is kind of uh, spoiling some of what I'm going to say about the the new film, but I think like the new film does lack that to a certain mm-hmm. extent. So I, I liked seeing it put back in here. Yeah, for me, those those early scenes, I, I think what I got most out of them was kind of a sense of who he is without her, like his his level of entitlement and just kind of like what he's used to as a star, like being able to they're out shooting something in the middle of the ocean and he's ordering somebody to go spend the next two days driving around a cul-de-sac, like looking for a hotel with a flower, a in hotel its with a flower in its name uh, that he can't remember. Like he just he takes that for so for granted and you get to see kind of how sick they are of him. Mm-hmm. And also like it's it's really unclear to me during this sequence whether whether he actually is drunk, but they're assuming he is because he's making these big outrageous demands and they're just they're there comes this sense of Hollywood is already tired of him. They're already tired of mm-hmm. dealing with him and and can't see any good in him. And I think that's just a really interesting dynamic for the beginning of that relationship. I'm glad those scenes are there. I'm certainly glad that we actually got to see them, at least. I also think it helps the romance between the two of them. I mean, it's it's not even a big part of the scenes that are put back in but like when he comes to the hotel and she's sunbathing on the roof i think is what we're supposed to take from from those stills you know and just like even in the audio that moment between them like the excitement of both in both of their voices of them like finding each other again i, th- I think it kind of sets the table for their romance in a way that just their 
original interactions of him being a drunken louse do not. So, I mean, I think you could talk about the way the film moves and say, well, you know, these scenes or this sequence, they don't move the film along efficiently. It's, it, it's, it's, it is an odd film in its full form. It's kind of this big buffet of a movie that you eat from and get kind of overstuffed. <laughs> I, get, I, I get the argument, just practically speaking, when you're thinking about telling a story efficiently and leading an audience from point A to point B to point C as well as you can. I mean, this movie doesn't really accomplish that. So you have to kind of just accept that and then love it for what it is doing, which is just giving you a lot more, I think. And part of what it's doing is, you know, giving you this big emotional tragedy kind of for both of them but as you say in the end kind of kind of for her like it's kind of a, a woman's weepy movie or at least it's partially taken from that form i'm curious you know given how much pain there is in this story for everybody if you see it as more of a tragedy for one of them or the other like if is this a movie about a woman who loves and loses is it a, a movie about a man who burns out and tries to get out of her way like whose tragedy is this story it's a tough question it's it's it, not necessarily an either or thing. I guess yeah. I'm I'm just curious what you see as kind of the shape of this. Well, I get to I get the feeling at the end of this, and not to get ahead of ourselves, but at the end of of uh, the 2018 one is is that she will have a life after this. Mm-hmm. That she will go on. This is part of a longer story for her. Not that it's not sad, but I feel like the, the real tragic arc belongs to the man in this in this story. Um, <laughs> I don't know because like both versions and, and again, like I don't want to get into this too much because it'll spoil what I want to say about the new one. But like, I think both versions in ending with the woman singing a song to her dead husband and both of them songs that, you know, suggest, well, in the new one, quite literally that they'll never love again, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, even the suggestion that like Vicky or Allie's life will go on and they'll continue to be successful or whatever. Like it's just tempered by this tragedy that they are forever scarred and traumatized by this. And like, maybe they never will love again. I, th- I feel like both films like make very clear the suggestion that this is it for them. That was the one romance they're, they're ever going to get, mm-hmm. you know, and that is like really, really heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, but I also don't entirely buy it. Like mm-hmm. I, in both films, I feel like that, that's a the kind of a sentimental Hollywood construct, and it, you know if you if you take that career up again ten years later, you may see a very different thing. But like that's not how movies end. You know, mm-hmm. movies movies don't go on forever. You have to pick a place to stop. And the most dramatic and emotional place in both of these films is, you know, the love of my life has gone. Sure. Yeah. Well, but I, I think that the key gesture here is not is not necessarily at least in this this star is born is her just claiming the name i mean she's not vicky lester she's she's mrs norman Maine. right i mean just you know the reason she was given the name vicky i mean vicky lester is removed from norman Maine quite explicitly she she has her own career that is being nurtured and there's there's an interest in that career not being dragged down by the toxic human being who is norman Maine. and so for her to be able to to say this person was my husband I don't think it necessarily negates the idea that she'll ever love again or anything like that. I, I didn't necessarily take that w- away from the movie. And I think the other part of it, too, is is what she is that that both of these guys believe that they're offering themselves for the benefit of the person that they love, which is what, what makes it that melodrama of self-sacrifice that, we're, that usually in a film like that, it, it is the woman who does that in the case of A Star is Born, it's the man. But, I, you know, I mean... Uh, I mean, I just think that that's one of the most tragic things about suicide is that people who commit suicide do often feel that they're 
helping people by getting out of the way, by taking mm. themselves out of their lives. And I think that that's something horrible and tragic that all of these movies kind of address to some degree is that horrible, depressive thinking. And in the cases of these movies, at least, people who are directly to blame for that kind of thinking, like people who actually stand up and verbalize that kind of thing, which I think is maybe a little rarer in real life. I want to talk more about the relationship between uh, Vicky and Norman, but I think that that would probably be better addressed in Connections in the next episode because there's so much complicated stuff going on in the rhythms of the relationships between the central couple in both of these films. And obviously it kind of mirrors each other. Mm -hmm. So let's just, let's talk about this film's what, what, what the movie making process looks like here. I think what strikes me most here is that sequence where before Vicky has her new name, she sat down in the makeup chair with a bunch of men in lab coats who resent her imposing herself by speaking while they're trying to work a miracle and then slapping makeup all over her, which she then walks out and Norman takes one look at her and, and like starts laughing. It made me wonder if it was a deliberate callback to Wizard of Oz, the, the makeover scene in Wizard of Oz, you know. Oh, oh it's get, been a they long go, time. They go, to, they go to Oz and they all get gussied up. Yeah. The line gets eyes like eyes like to my dress? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, she comes out of that look, looking very artificial, but looking reasonably spiffy. Oh, oh yeah. Just, just like the, the sight of her like in the chair being examined, you know, in an almost like medical setting. It definitely reminded <laughs> yeah, me of that. I made that connection. The, yeah. Yeah, I think it <laughs> I might be that, that, that sort of depressing march through... When she's a contract player, just sort of depressing march through one man after another who just doesn't care. You know, it's like, oh, uh, yeah. the publicity was, department. What was the line? Like, we're, we're, we're thrilled to have you or something like that. Yeah. 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 Just shuttling her from one person to the next. And then, like, she comes out the same door <laughs> she came in. Yeah. Uh, There's an almost Escher-esque uh, yeah. design to those staircases where she mm-hmm. comes down at the bottom and looks at the one that she just went up and yeah. just kind of goes, uh and then gets caught in the turnstile. <laughs> but I mean, do you do you think of this as more a, like a glamorous or cynical look at Hollywood? Like how how do you see Hollywood is interfacing with what he's trying to do for her, what she's trying to do with the world, what the world wants out of both of them? It's I think it's complicated, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's represented by the two men in the story, the Oliver, the Oliver and, Libby. And, and Libby, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it, but Oliver is the guy who runs the studio, and and, yeah. and and I think there's a sense of of loyalty of of trying to do the best thing for for his people to some extent. I mean, but the, Libby's the guy who Libby's the bad. But, but you, can't, you can't you couldn't do it without him, though. You know, I think I, like you have you have to have yeah. one. To, he can be the idealist and sit back and and you know support the artist because he has someone else doing the dirty work for him. True, yeah. true. Libby's not exactly giving uh, giving Norman any kind of a second chance. I mean, he's ready, no. he's ready to cut him down. That scene where he's actually working on the publicity for his death is kills me because it's it's just so it, that that is the most cynical moment in the movie. Yeah, and I think it's also really honest about how things work too. I think I think it's also important to point out that uh, this movie starts with literally a benefit for Hollywood. <laughs> you know, like the like the cause is Hollywood because Hollywood was kind of struggling it was it was post-war you know people weren't necessarily going to the theaters people were staying home because it was cheaper to stay at home and watch tv than to go buy a movie ticket you know that sounds familiar yeah (laughs) all right um it's all cyclical guys everything old is new again yeah yeah so the oliver character oliver niles the studio head even the actions he takes that are seen as detrimental to you know the movies or just to norman himself they all come from this place of 
we're hurting right now. You know, we're, we, we're having to make cuts. We're having to, you know, tighten the purse strings. And like, we literally can't afford your antics anymore. I think that also kind of relates to Libby's thing. But he also just seems to have much more of a grudge against Norman because he's made his life so hard for however many years. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Oliver is coming from more of sort of a practical, even like beaten down place of like, those days are over, man. Like, you know, this is how we got to run the show now. We should also say that the film is so much a celebration of what a Hollywood production can do. I mean, just with, with it being in Cinemascope, with it being in Technicolor, all this money being thrown at the screen and, and having these huge splashy musical numbers and even what would, would seem like a scene you could do more simply, like like the opening, you know, Hollywood tribute, tri- paying tribute to itself. That is a packed, very complicated uh, very expensive scene. So we get to kind of watch this film and just appreciate the glamour of it and, and the scope of it. You know, and the fact that they, they insisted it being CinemaScope, which was this newish widescreen format. I mean, it was a attempt to really dazzle audiences. Uh, and um, I think it's still... All that sort of holds up. So uh, Cooper apparently was not into the cinemascope aspect, or I, I guess like the studio demanded it after filming had already begun, and I think oh it, yeah, they had to scrap that it to one of existing footage yeah. in order to yeah. start over with it. So I don't know, maybe that uh, kind of influenced his, his feelings on it. But um, yeah, well, can you imagine? It must be a huge adjustment to be yeah. to, to for a director to start working in that. It's uh, a when, much wider frame. Yeah, much wider and is I, I was noticing uh, when I was watching on on my TV that some of like the, the edges of the screen and some of the big musical numbers like looked a little warped or stretched it seemed like people were a little squished is that uh artifact of the cinema scope probably you think? because yeah. of the way it works and you know just you're, you're actually I'll, I'll mess it up but i mean you're actually distorting and yeah. then undistorting the image when you're when you're shooting in cinema scope so you probably and it, it being new they're probably losing some detail yeah, squeezed like if, you, yeah. if you look at a if you look at a frame of film that's uh cinema scope it's uh squeezed and then you put when you put it through the lens then it it opens up uh just real quick before we leave the topic of like how it portrays hollywood i was really kind of delighted at the scene at the academy awards to learn that apparently people used to dance at the oscars yes what what, what a huge change (laughs) (laughs) the best actress and then okay let's dance yeah Uh, let's bring it back. You know, yeah. you know, ratings are going down. I think the dancing would only right? uh, drive ratings up, right? And when you can have somebody in the background hosting and just making horrible cynical comments about how much time it's taking uh-huh. up and how the audience is hating it. Yes, there, perfect. <laughs> We've solved the Oscar problem. Uh, and all, and all, all like the sound people, all the sound editor winners will have to just dance in the aisle or in their seat or something. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't think I had ever seen anything with James Mason young. I, I'm I'm not sure I'd seen him in anything. He doesn't seem that he never, young he, here. He, he <laughs> he never, seems... He's one of those actors who never who never looks young. Even when well, he's he seen Lolita. That's just a few years later, though. I mean, that's seen like, what Lolita is only what eight years later. Really? What well, I mean, <laughs> may have been a hard eight years. Yeah, he, was, he would have been in his mid forties. Seen North by movie. Northwest. That, that's around the same time. Gosh, is it? He just he looks so young to me here, and it's so odd that that's that's young in my world these days, Scott. (laughs) I know he looks so young compared to to what I'm used to, and Mm. but to hear that voice, like that deep, gravelly, like James Mason voice. Come on, you guys, you know you want to do it. Uh, No, (laughs) you've been threatening to do it. I've been threatening to do it because I don't think I can do it. (laughs) We got your Robert Shaw. We're not going to get your James Mason. No, no, sorry. Such a good Robert Shaw too. I probably do like I forget which one it is, but there's. 
that Beatles recording one of them talks with the famous James Mason impression, and that's uh, that's probably what I'd end up sounding like. But I mostly uh, what I was what I was getting at the long way around, and it ended up being the even longer way around. Was uh, any any thoughts on the performances here? I mean, all, I, I already said Judy Garland's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. She's just, she, she absolutely breaks your heart. And I, I think that, that little bit of extra textual information that you mentioned, the irony in the movie that she was going through, a lot of the things that he, his character goes through, I think that, I, you know, without projecting too much, it, it, it certainly feels like she understands that so much and is able to feel it in a way that maybe she wouldn't have otherwise. I don't know. She, she does. She's so perfect you know i don't know what she how she did it but um but i think she's so moving in the film and then she just can show you how how she can sing and dance and do everything too she it's just a full performance it kind of made me think like i, I kind of looked back to see how in the hell she did win best actress for this like if like just cancel the whole award if you're not going to give it to her for she this. lost and to grace kelly right she lost to yeah. grace kelly for, for a movie i'd not even heard no, of. I don't Hedda know hopper movie. claimed she lost by six votes oh really yes i it, like i from what i've read judy garland never really recovered from not winning the oscar she for this. apparently called grace kelly up in a fury about how this was her only chance to win and she'd have chances in the future. And she doesn't appear <laughs> on screen in a movie. She does some voice work, but she doesn't appear on screen in, in a movie for another seven years. Yeah. And she's, and she wasn't around for a whole lot longer after no, that. So it was like no. the comeback that wasn't, but like watching it t- today, you know, like so removed from the drama. Yeah. Like it's like, how? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was just so reminded of the when my week with Marilyn came out. I kind of did a deep dive into. I read the book it was based on, uh, which was largely about the shooting of the Prince and the Showgirl, and then I had to watch the Prince and the Showgirl. Mm-hmm. And that book is so much about what Marilyn Monroe was going through, showing up like drunk on the set or showing up hours late, and it was an incredibly troubled production. And then you watch it, and like none of that is on the screen. She's just she's luminous and she's so intense and sexual but sweet at the same time. It's a tremendous performance. And I kept thinking of that here because mm-hmm. you read all of this stuff about her showing up to set like hours late, her delaying the production, the budget skyrocketing, everybody angry with her, her calling in sick for days on end, but then going to sing at clubs and that turning up in the media and her getting called on the carpet about it. And then what you see on screen is just her being Judy Garland. It's so hard to reconcile history with, you know, the the edited version of what you see in the movies. A pro's a pro, though. I mean, I think this is actually something that the Bradley Cooper star is born recognizes quite well. I guess we'll we'll, we'll get to that. But but during the. that the Oscar performance that Jackson Maine ends up giving in that film is kind of a suggestion like, you know, even when they're kind of messed up, a pro can pull it, can kind of pull it off anyway. And I, I think like one thing to maybe keep in mind or like sort of an alternate history to, to entertain. And I've, I've kind of ended up down a hole of like Judy Garland fan sites today. <laughs> uh, one oh, yeah. of, uh, <laughs> I assume there are a few of those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this, person who is writing this piece about this movie like obviously is a big judy garland fan but put forth that like judy did not want to perform if she wasn't going to be her best and a lot of the things that are attributed to her being like a problem on the set like you know not wanting to shoot blah 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 like 
another way to think of it is she knew she wasn't at her best and she didn't want to waste everyone's time if she wasn't going to go out there and deliver. And that's maybe like a more slightly more generous reading, but I think kind of ties back to this idea of being a pro and knowing when you are able to do the thing that you have been hired to do and when you are not able to do it. Here, wait just a second. Okay. I think I must have chewed my lips off wondering if he was going to come staggering back on again. I've never been so frightened. My, my knees were shaking all the time. Was I on key? I couldn't hear a thing. You were on pitch all the way. Well, that's a wonder. That's a wonder to me that Mr. Norman Maine is still in pictures. Is this indeed? In fact, I ask it myself every morning while I'm shaving. I say... Mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the greatest star of them all? Do you know the mirror answers? Norman May. <laughs> Absolutely correct, Miss... Um... Blodgett, Esther Blodgett. <laughs> you must have been born with that name. You couldn't have made it up. I was born with it. Excuse me. You wouldn't make up a name like that, would you? To mark the occasion when uh, Esther Blodgett. Oh. Yeah. Uh, saved Norman Maine from making even more of a fool of himself than usual. I thank you. And, and, and should we talk about James Mason? Anyone want to? We, we sh- I feel I, like we should. I, I, you know, I mean, there's a lot of potential people who could have been cast in this and dream casting and that sort of thing. I, and, you know, apparently George Cooker never forgave Cary Grant for not saying yes. But, I, you know, I, I really think James Mason is kind of the right guy for the role. Mm-hmm. And I like how you almost have a starting point with him where he's, he's all, you start with him on the decline. That's really... Start with him at rock bottom, really. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, but he started, you know, he's so, he's, he's such, such a mess from the beginning, but so kind of sophisticated and you of know, course. and he feels you know <laughs> I don't think he's at rock bottom at that point though because he's still having fun like mm, he doesn't yeah. realize everybody is laughing at him or furious with him but he's completely oblivious to it yeah I love that sequence so much just for the way it fills up the screen with showgirls and horses and you can see what's on stage but you can see just the calamity going on backstage mm-hmm. All of the work that's being put into trying to control him and none of it is effective at all. Yeah. It's a beautiful sequence. And and part of what makes it work, I think, is James Mason not being Humphrey Bogart, not being mm-hmm. Cary Grant, not being – I can't picture no, – no, no, I'll take that back. I can picture uh, Jimmy Stewart in this role. It would have been a very different film. But he, yeah. I just think he's very uh, – James Mason is quite eclipsable. <laughs> You know what yeah. I mean? In a way that Cary Grant is not. Cary Grant is such a huge star. And I think I think James Mason is somebody who you can see might have been a star at one point, but is is, is on the yeah. fade. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I also think that he absolutely nails the the end of the movie. I just think I think like when he you get to that point where he resolves to himself and you know that he's making that resolution that that this is the way things are going to go and he asks you know to let me get another look at you or whatever oh, it's just like it kills you i think he just he, he gets the emotion of that down so well and it's not showy it's just a beautiful little moment i like james mason is not a particularly egotistical actor or you know he's somebody he kind of who can kind of give a little bit just as norman kind of gives his life over to Esther or Vicky, I think he's able to kind of give the movie over to, to, to Judy Garland and let it be mm-hmm. her film. Yeah, and he's so charming uh, when he's supposed to be charming, 
but the scenes where he has where he just his face just twists and in psychological torture i mean he does it here he does it in bigger than life it's like i'm not sure anyone does that better than james mason a sort of like fundamentally dignified person who's facing a truth he can't deal with and and, and mortification and embarrassment with what he's become and, and mm-hmm. a sense he's run out of road yeah he's he's great in this yeah and, and like we started out talking about that amazing sequence where she's performing for him in, in their home and like obviously garland is incredible in that but like he is doing so much in there, not just like while she is performing, but in the the matter around it, the the lead up to it, where he's sort of like puttering around the house and just his demeanor there, his demeanor when he is watching her. And then when, you know, he answers the door for a delivery and isn't recognized and just the, the deflation that, that comes as a, as a result. Like, I mean, he's he's doing a lot, a wide range of character work in that sequence, but it's all like very subtle and secondary to, to Garland in terms of like star power, but it's all very essential to both the character and the relationship between those two characters. Well, there's a ton left to talk about, but I, I mostly want to save it for talking about these two movies in comparison with each other. I guess to wrap up, let's let's just talk a little about that "Born in a Trunk" sequence. That was that was the big controversy. Wait, in we the have film. to we have to spend like two thirds of this this podcast talking about "Born." <laughs> we also have to move from room to room while yeah. we're doing it, so there can be a different background every couple minutes. We have to change the tone and tenor of the conversation every two minutes. You know, I, I was familiar with Born in a Trunk, or as I discovered watching this, a small segment of Born in a Trunk <laughs> from um, like a musical sing-along uh, thing that a bar here in Chicago does that occasionally plays uh, that sequence. And uh, But like I said, a much smaller portion of it. So I was just like, what is happening? <laughs> Yeah. I, need, I need a snack break. It's so it's it's not my favorite sequence in the film. Like again, it's very impressive, you know, from the perspective of, of Garland and and from a filmmaking perspective, just the way it does, like weave in and out of of styles and time periods and and whatnot. But I don't know. It's it's not my favorite. Oh, I, I loved it. I wanted yeah. to, I wanted to applaud when it was over, and I thought I thought that, yeah, of course you do an intermission there. What else can you do but drop the curtain? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and for the so record, you got your was, snack break. I did. <laughs> that was supervised by Roger Edens, who worked for the Freed Unit and MGM. So that's if you want someone to get that style down, go for someone who actually helped create that style. Yeah, and that was like Garland's go-to guy, right? Yeah. Cooker yeah. wasn't even on set anymore when they did that, right? It, it occurs to me that the film, the the sequence, reminded me so much of the end of an american in paris too which had mm-hmm. which has that same thing where it's where it's just like this just huge going. medley that just keeps going and that is my least favorite part of american in paris but I, i'm still kind of happy to have it in both films and i think it's i think this is a more strikingly filmed even than that than that sequence in american in paris but it it, it is kind of a, a wtf <laughs> thing to have this just absurdly long you know musical sequences changing backdrops stuck in the middle of the movie but but again it's like i i think as i was saying before you know you co- commit to this smorgasbord of a movie i i would not commit to the smorgasbord of a movie i like i'm i'm glad to have seen it i think if i was going to watch this movie again i'd probably consistently skip it no well, you, uh, you don't skip part of a movie That's, you, no hold you on we really gotta, can we gotta talk about no you can't you sit down you you hit play and you watch it even even on second viewing you're that dogmatic yeah, part of about the movie. it yeah, yeah, yeah i mean I, i'll i'll sometimes like sometimes i don't get to finish things but no i don't skip parts of a movie that's that's, that's insane Hmm. I don't even like it. Well, what about playing 
on two times speed, so everyone sounds like chipmunks. Yeah, well, that's great. That's probably that's that I'm on board with. That's so, so, but you're you're you're, you're taking this. I mean, because I'm usually I'm usually Mr. Dog. I like so you, if a person has seen a film before, yes, okay, and there's a stretch of the film that they maybe they don't really want to have to deal with. And even if it's it. say you a Marx it, Brothers okay. film, and there are musical sequences that are just meant to showcase the the not very great singer of the hour, <laughs> and you just want to get back to the funny Marx Brothers. Stuff. I fast forward that when I was a kid, but I wouldn't do it now because it's part of the movie. Because it's that. part of the movie. Yeah. Wow. I think you may be the Tasha in this discussion. He's gonna like. <laughs> All right. He's gonna come to everybody's house and just pop the pop the fast forward. I don't even like. I don't even like. I, I, there's some habits I'm trying to get out of. Like I, I've started actually like whenever I can leaving my phone in the other room just so I'm not tempted to to even look at it. But I mean that's good process. That's that's good process. It's hard when you you know when you have like you know editing tasks you have to do and make it, might get interrupted when you're trying to watch a movie. But or you have a small but, child. Or a small child. But I I resigned myself a long time ago to, to watching movies and two three sometimes more sittings if I have to but I don't skip it that's insane I sometimes <laughs> take a break during the work day and like watch a scene that I like like on YouTube oh, how sure, do you that's feel about fine. that no that's fine that's fine because that's I haven't committed great. to anything no but I mean if you're committed to watching a movie uh, but I don't, I don't, feel, I don't feel once, once, once the opening credits roll you're in yeah you got, you're, you're committed to that. <laughs> do you ever fast forward through the opening credits of no. old movies where they're all up at the front and it's just a bunch of text and music the overture <laughs> <laughs> You are in your seats and ready to watch when the overture happens. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, I, yeah. I never knew. I never knew you were this dogmatic. Yeah. I could probably say a whole bunch more stuff about uh, Born in a Trunk, but I, I really kind of want to let that stand. <laughs> Guys, if you're skipping any part of the movie, you're doing it wrong. I really want to hear what the listeners think about this one. Just zone out or something. <laughs> you got to watch it. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to have a lot more to say about the 1954 A Star is Born and the parts of it you can and cannot skip next week when we see what it looks like up against the 2018 version. But first a break and some feedback. Also, my writer says that my dressing room should be full of pink oleanders by now, so I need to go check and make sure those were delivered. Now it's time for feedback, when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else you want to talk about in the world of film. Genevieve, you're our resident superstar. You want to read all of these letters to us now? (laughs) Uh, Actually, I was thinking we should give Keith some more work, Uh, so I'm going to give this one to him. Huh. Uh, Okay. He'll I'll, be fine. I'll take it where you can get it. Um, <laughs> Nicholas writes, Hey, all following your social media posts at film festivals around the world has me itching to go to my first non-local film festival. I grew up in Miami and now live in Tampa, Florida for school. What would you suggest for an affordable first-time film fest outside of Florida, but inside the U.S., happening either this fall or winter? So we're a little late to the the ball game on this one. This was uh, posted on Facebook, <laughs> and it's we're we're a little far into fall slash winter. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also, and also well past festival season. Yeah, for we're this year. we're out of festival season. But to be it's honest, good advice for next year. An awful lot of these film festivals, you you really want to do your planning in advance. We started getting our solicitations to set up our housing for South by Southwest two months after South by Southwest. So uh, like, I I think we're going to talk about film festivals a little in general, and you you really want to get like your housing and ticketing booked in advance. Now it varies a lot depending on how small and or regional a film festival is, but I think we can just kind of talk about the calendar year a little bit. Guys, 
you've all been to a bunch of film festivals, sure. including some some like really small specific mm-hmm. ones. What would you recommend to somebody of like a first time uh, out of town film festival? Well, Nicholas grew up in Miami, so he went surely went to the Miami Film Festival, which is a quite good festival. It's it's very much modeled after similar to the New York Film Festival in that there's really just one screening house. It's large. You can see every single film that they show. It's only you know so it's, so it's very curated. There's like quite a bit of. Um, Latin American material, so that's a that's a good festival. Festival, but you talk about going outside of Florida. So, so my answer for that would would be true false. I knew it. That, yeah, that was my guess. <laughs> it, 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 which I have not. Which I've gone to the last four years. It's in Columbia, Missouri, in the fir- early days of March, like the first weekend weekend in March, like a Thursday through Sunday. It's a documentary film festival, though. Though it is uh, the title true false suggests. You know, an emphasis on movies where the the line between what is what is fiction and what is nonfiction is blurred. They like films that kind of play in that area a little bit more rather than your more traditional documentaries. Though they will st- show those too, like like the Mister Rogers doc was there this year. So it's not like they're averse to showing those types of films. But you will see a lot of more avant garde. Uh, documentaries there and more you know uh, form breaking yeah and it's very well curated and it's very quirky they have these uh buskers like bands that play before every screening they have uh uh, these provocations that that people will uh, give, where they where they give a little speech, a little presentation, a little talk before the movie. That's that's uh, usually usually funny or uh, thought provoking or something. That's that's interesting. Uh, the food is unreal <laughs> in this town. It's a college is it, town. Is that the place that has the goulash you like? It has the goulash <laughs> I like. It has it has the donuts I like. Uh, I mean, I I really just leave uh, that much closer to death when I when I leave that place as I eat. <laughs> so well and so badly at the same time but but um it's very affordable i think uh it's extremely accessible to people that, because that's an issue with a lot of these major film festivals is that they some of them are all impossible to access like i think sundance and in, in Cannes would be just a bad idea um some are challenging like like tiff which is a public festival in which you can get public tickets but it's it's large and, and daunting and those public tickets can be really really expensive, expensive. Like, yeah so, so this is like, like 25 dollars for a single movie right. at tiff if you're if you're not like buying a membership which can run into the thousands I yeah believe. no no this so this, you can afford this you can afford true false um the audiences are wonderful every film every filmmaker shows up Everybody is all you know, are, is there with their movie. It's and so there's a lot of com- good, great conversation with filmmakers and with with critics. They're all in close proximity. It's good stuff. So true false would be my answer. Keith, I don't go to a lot of festivals. I I don't. I mean, it's sort of like been my role at AV Club and Dissolve and then Uprocks is sort of like I was the guy that stayed home and edited things while everyone else went to yeah, festivals. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat. Yeah, I, I think I think I'm going to Sundance this year though, so that's yeah. kind of exciting. I, I I've been to well, I've been to two film festivals. One which is the Milwaukee Film Festival, that which was we, good. we all yeah. went. Yeah, yeah, we that all went to. And, and yeah, that was a. I think uh, I mean Milwaukee's pretty far away from Tampa, you know, but uh, and might be a little jarring to someone who uh, grew up in my. I mean, it's happening now or it just wrapped, you know. So, um, you know, Milwaukee in uh, late October might not be your, you know, yeah. your ideal destination, but it, but it is a, a, a very good and affordable festival. But the only sort of more major festival I've been to is South by South by Southwest. 
And that is a just a big kind of unwieldy festival because it happens concurrently or, or sort of overlaps with their interactive and music and comedy arms. So there's like a whole lot going on and it, it's it's a little overwhelming. But it, there, there's also like some very interesting things that premiere there. I, I think it generally kind of skews a little more genre-y or comedy type stuff there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of people show up. Austin is a great town. There's a ton going on there, maybe too much going on there, depending on, you know, what your your speed is. But if you plan far enough in advance, you know, and really sort of map out what you want to do, I think it, it would be a, a very fun and accessible. Uh, what month festival. is that? It's in March, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, for me, I, I, I'm going to echo like everything you guys have been saying. I would not recommend a first timer uh, try to go to Sundance where you're dealing with elevation sickness and usually snow and the difficulty of getting around and housing there is expensive. Expensive. And then on top of all that, you're going to spend venue, a lot of time venue suck. It's standing, <laughs> standing in line in the snow to see a movie at the local public library. Yeah. I, like South by is, is fun, but I do think it helps if you're, if you're into the eclectic and mm-hmm. if you're into like, okay, I'll see two movies today and then go to an interactive VR thing and then go to a concert yeah. as opposed to trying to go for like full on film density. I also, I don't think I would send people to TIFF. Trebekah in New York, I'm very fond of. It's more low-key. You're not going to see... Like, South By had the premieres, I believe the world premieres of... Um, no, they, they they had I Love Dogs, I think, a week after Berlin, Berlin maybe? Berlin is where that premiered, yeah. Um, but I like, had the top opportunity to see... Uh, I think Baby Driver premiered there, right? Uh, I wasn't there they've that had year. Some, they've had some they, They've had some notable They had Ready Player One. So, yeah. so, I think McGruber premiered there. <laughs> <laughs> so they do get some bigger things, but they also get like a lot of small and interesting things it's just it's really varied but for me like at this point hands down the festival that i would send people to is fantastic fest Mm. uh, which is also in austin but it is entirely at the uh the alamo draft house now if you're going to go to fantastic fest you have to be into cult cinema preferably like seriously into horror films and genre films certainly into violent films because there's a lot of that kind of stuff they do a a handful of retrospectives uh that was heavier this year but they mostly get a lot of world premieres of mostly smaller um indie films international films and stuff that's that's just going for cult fame the trick to it is at every other film festival i've been at for non-industry people you're going to spend a ton of time standing in line just get used to it. Yeah. Just huge long lines that you have to queue up in uh, an hour in advance of the film at least. And like more if you're worried about not getting in, if you don't have like uh, a fairly expensive, most of these places have tiered passes. So unless you've got, you've shelled out for one of the higher level passes that is going to get you in, you're probably going to be standing in line for an hour and then you might not still get into the film. So fantastic fest they don't overbook. You don't end up standing around in line. It is the best organized film festival I go to. There's a weird queuing system where you kind of put in for the films you most want to see. And then there's kind of a lottery that tells you what film you do get into. But you're guaranteed to get into a film every slot. And it's very easy to see five films a day if that's what you're looking for. Because it's all at the Draft House, uh, there's good food there on site. So you don't have to be constantly like eating a sandwich out of your bag surreptitiously in the middle of the movie mm-hmm. that you got at the drugstore. And I just love the films. I know that Fantastic Fest has a bit of a rep problem because of the whole Devin Ferrassi thing and like everything that went on with, with the Alamo around that. 
but last year, Katie Rife from the AV Club uh, got a bunch of women together and basically said, we want to fix this because we love this film. And they more or less wrote a, a manifesto for uh, Fantastic Fest in the Draft House to the effect of, here's what we want to see change around harassment. And the Alamo adopted it, and they're they're doing their best. So important strides are being made there. And I really just think it's important to not write off this festival, you know, because of a couple of really bad eggs and the people that enabled them. For a long time. To for be a fair. long time. For a long time. And tried to bring them back into the fold. Without and anybody knowing about it behind the scenes. The, the stories around, uh, you know, it's not our place to get into it. And Harry Knowles. You know, and and who's, know. who's to say, who's to you know, I'm glad to hear they're trying to make some changes. I, I, that, I'm waiting for the big um, article explaining to me how much Alamo has, has improved. Uh, and so I can kind of feel better about it again. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just, the people who work there veer so hard in the direction of queer and people of color and, uh, you know, people with tattoos and piercings that are super, super into cinema. You just, you get a lot of, you know, outsider people who are doing what they love around the thing they love. And it's just, it's a shame that a couple people had to seriously taint it by being jackholes. <laughs> but that said... Uh, it's such a good scene. It's just every film festival you go to, you're going to have a lot of really good conversations about film. So you have that to look forward to. I think the baseline advice is if there's a specific kind of cinema you're into, like Docs for True or False, uh, like small international cinema for Tribeca, cult films. I go to a HP Lovecraft specific film festival in Portland every year. It's very specific. It is very specific. <laughs> Whatever you're super into, I would actually look for that film festival. Mm. Oh, I should. Um, yeah, I didn't get to go this year. I did go to a great festival a couple of years ago. It was the Overlook Festival. Oh, okay. you went to Overlook. Yeah, I went to the first year they had it and when it was at at the hotel hotel where they shot the exteriors for the shiny and they had mm -hmm. it this year in new orleans i would have loved to have gone but that was great it was totally immersed in the like horror films for in this very enclosed space with a bunch of enthusiastic people that mm -hmm. was uh i would uh love to do that again sometime i hear super great things about that uh my colleague brian bishop goes every year and is hugely into it uh i actually got to meet the people who do it at south by this year and they were really cool mm -hmm. uh i would love to go we can't send two people to the same teeny tiny film festival sure but i'm glad you had a good time with it yeah no it's great look for what you're into there's a film festival for it well that was a lot of thoughts on film festivals we love like big questions about film which we don't get enough of in feedback because they produce interesting conversations so that is a good reminder that we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts their recommendations and their big questions about cinema send them to us so we can talk about them on a future episode or post those letters on facebook for discussion to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at next picture show.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll look at another star being born many decades later in Bradley Cooper's very much updated version of this same story. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, could you, could you turn around real quick? We just want to get another look at you. So I can't quite be called overnight sensation, for it started many years ago.
when I was born in a trunk in the princess thing. 